You know, we have such great people in, our, in this church, and uh, the reason why we, we titled this um, No Perfect People Loud is because none of us are perfect. Um, it, it's easy sometimes, I think, you know, when you're sitting out, and I've, I've got a microphone and a cool jacket, and you're going, man, that guy's got it all together. And I think we can all say, Melinda, quit laughing so hard. I think we can all say, no, no, like, no one up here is perfect. No one up here trying to be perfect. And some, I think people can have this mentality that, oh, I can't go to church. God's going to strike me down, kill me, that kind of stuff. And it's like, no, man, God is so loving. Um, and yet he's not going to leave you where you are. So don't mistake that. Don't mistake, ah, he just loves me and I'm good. No, no, no. He loves you too much to leave you. But he loves you so much that he wants you to come to him. And he demonstrated that in Christ Jesus. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so as we get into 1 Corinthians, I appreciate Henry. We're going to talk more about his testimony because today we are in the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, we're going to end chapter 6 and going to chapter 7. It's going to be a lot, a lot that we're going to be hitting today. But we're going to hit, be hitting two things. So we're going to hit pretty much everybody in this room in some way or another, which we're going to talk about marriage and we're going to talk about singleness. Any single people, all the single ladies? Okay, it's left hand, right? Um, Sorry, you're like, don't do that, white guy. And so uh, I get it. Um, we're going to talk about singleness. We're talking about marriage, what it is, what it isn't, what's the point, what's the goal. Because uh, j just to remind you, 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And the reason why we're studying Corinthians and why it's so powerful and why you should listen today, whether it's your first time or your second time, the reason why you should listen to this message today, not because you just, you just need to get something out of it or oh, maybe I'll get something out of it. Um, you know, I really envy the TED Talk people, like they get up and talk for 15 minutes and have like one message. I have to come up with 40 minute messages every week. So those TED Talk people are wusses. Like they got nothing <laughs> on pastors. Like it's easy to have one message to continue to get up. But, but a lot of times for me, I'm like, okay, how can I make people want to understand this or want to know why this is important? And um, what I want to really encourage you is as we're getting into a 2,000-year-old text, this was written in about 54 AD, um, that the church of Corinth is so much like the church here in Houston. That often, if you've been a Christian a long time, you could go, man, we just need to get back to how the first church was. And yet that is so silly because they were so jacked up then. Like you can't romanticize the church as if that was the epitome of church. No, they were really messed up. And this is the people that Paul is talking to. And he's talking to this church in Corinth, which was a port city, similar to Houston, Galveston area, which had a lot of trade, a lot of money through, through that act. It was a very dense, very popular city and extremely diverse city. So tons of thoughts and ideas, which I could just go off on this idea. Uh, pe people that say, you know what, Christianity is just brainwashing people. Every idea is brainwashing people. Every idea is trying to get a thought or a worldview into you to get you to do what that thing is. So it's not just one religion or one act. Everything is trying to change the way you think in order to conform to a specific way. And this is what was happening in Corinth. There were so many different ideas and ideologies and philosophies and religions. And there was so much sexual immorality and people divorcing or having multiple wives or, or having a wife but going visit the prostitutes in the temple in their religious place in Corinth that you see this in Houston. In fact, 
our very own exchange ministry this last Friday. Um, a lot of us came here and prayed, and then a, a group of amazing people led by Holly and Sterling um, went out and went to a brothel and, and, and talking to the mama sons and, and praying for or like over the area and the Johns that are coming in, trying to exploit women and hire them for sex. I mean, this is prevalent as Houston is the number one in human uh, sex trafficking in the nation. And so we're fighting that, we're fighting against that. And it's, but it's so much like Corinth. The church is so much like Corinth and our division and the things that polarize us in the church, of course, in our country, depending on which aisle you are on politically or with race or with your economic structure and your ability to obtain or not have, if you're broke or you got a lot of money, everything can just divide us more and more. And this is what Paul's talking to in this very place. The, not only the culture, but of course the church saying, how do we live now that we are united in Christ and one family and yet we still have all these things and issues? So it's so relevant. So I want to encourage you, continue to come and invest. I, I'm about to be gone for the next several weeks going on a mission trip to a 10 days mission trip to Baja, Mexico, uh, which we've got several of us going. And there's another mission trip coming up to Nepal, several, uh, about three of us going to that in our church. Um, and then I've got some conferences, so I'm going to be gone. You're going to get to hear from G and Scott. Jay next week has to hit three chapters in 1 Corinthians, pray for him. And then... Uh, as well as Randy, of course. So you're going to get a lot of different things, but I want to encourage you, dive into the scripture and learn the history, figure out what's going on. Uh, open up our, we have a daily devotional called Starter that we're going through every verse. So we're not going to be able to hit every verse, but man, let's dive into it because this text speaks a lot to us and what God wants to share with us. This is PG-13. Um, so I have to warn you, uh, because of that, but we are going to continue in it, which is one of the things I love about going straight through the Bible is it, it forces you to talk about things you might not normally talk about. And if you are easily offended, we love you. <laughs> not trying to offend you. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 through 20. Last week, we really talked about what is the gospel? What does this mean? Some of you were this. The week before that, we talked about a lot of different incest and different things that the Bible refers to was happening even in the church that he had to tackle as a father to sons. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. Here's what it says. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So if you're not aware, aware, Paul is writing to this church in Corinth and he's responding to a letter that was written to him. Now we don't have that letter, but a letter written to him and we, we hear some of the things that were in that letter, some of the problems they were having in the church. So the leadership is writing Paul saying, hey, this church you started and you were here 18 months, we're struggling. We've got some issues. And he's quoting almost, this is what you say. It's easy to say, this is what we say. All things are, I can do whatever I want because of what Christ has done. He has broken down the law. So I, I don't have a law. He gets me. He says, yeah, but not everything's helpful or profitable. All, all things are lawful for me, you say. But I will not be dominated by anything. Jesus puts a line in the sand and, and says, you're either dominated or a slave, Jesus says, to sin, to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, to the pride of life. Or you are dominated and a slave to God in his ways. There's not a true freedom in the sense that I can do whatever I want. 
because we're all bound to something. Something's going to dominate us ultimately if we give into it fully. And so he's pleading, be dominated by Christ and his love for you because he's way more trustworthy than that person that's just out to get something from you or give something to you that makes you addicted, frustrated, ultimately killing your spirit and your soul. He says this, food is meant for the stomach, verse 13, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. We mentioned this last week. The word sexual immorality is really anything outside of sex between a married couple. So it's a, it's a very broad, generic term for all sorts of sexual activity outside of a committed marriage when he's saying this. He says, uh, the body is not meant for sexual immorality and not that it's bad, but that it's, that's not the number one focus of our body, but it's meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Remember, he's talking to the church. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee. He doesn't say fight. He says flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body. But the sexually immoral person sinned against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, this is not a particularly popular message in in today's culture because this idea of freedom means I can do whatever I want, but true freedom has healthy and right boundaries that allow you to operate in true freedom versus insecurity that scares you or binds you and holds you into a specific place. And so the idea that I can, I'm free, which means I can do whatever I want, you actually find yourself in bondage to other things in your act of freedom. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, do you not realize that your body is the very temple of the Holy Spirit. So if you're a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of you and your body is that temple holding God in a way. And he's saying, listen, because it's popular in our culture or especially in that time to say, I am super, super spiritual or I am super lawful or I, 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 I understand my emotions and I'm gonna do whatever I want to with my emotions. So therefore my body doesn't matter. The material world is, is no good because we're just about the spirit. And Paul's actually debunking that idea because he's saying, no, 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 no. You are spirit, soul, and body. You are a spirit given by God. God has renewed your spirit to make you be able to commune with him. You are a soul, your mind, and your will, and your emotions. But you don't dismiss your body. Your body is still a part of who you are. So you can't say, I'm going to do whatever I want to with my body as long as I'm, I'm just going to stay spiritual. God says, no, you work together completely, okay? But see, in our life, it's easy. We, we compartmentalize everything in our life, right? Like this is my church time, right? 
Um, this is my kind of family time. This is my work time. Here's my hobbies. And instead of God being in and through all of that, he's just a small part of it. And then we go, well, I don't, I don't really hear God. I don't really feel God. I don't really have a desire for God. And we're going, okay, well, God's not in everything in your life. You've separated your body from, from your mind and your soul, and you can't do that. And this is what Paul is appealing to and talking to the church, saying, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? It matters what you do with your body. And in fact, he goes on to say, not just because I want you to feel good or, or do really, really good or look good, go to CrossFit, not just for that kind of stuff, but he says this, you were bought with a price. Like, you are not your own any longer. You are God's possession because of what Christ has done. It was interesting. Last night I was, I was studying this and looking at commentaries and, and, and doing some study and looking at some things. And my, my 12-year-old daughter, which this is, this is pretty graphic. <laughs> if you're super hyper-religious, like, I would not have my 12-year-old daughter look at it. She was, she was reading with it and with me and looking at it. And, and she, we, I started asking her questions. I said, what, what, do you think, what do you think it means when it says, you know, your body is not your own and you're bought with a, with a price? And she said, well, it means that Jesus dying on the cross for us, his blood actually purchased me and I am his. And she started talking to me about all the friends that are in her school. She's sixth grade. 12, 12 years old, going in seventh grade, but all her friends in sixth grade. And she said, dad, this is, this is, this is hard because I, I, I'm trying to live this out. And I talked to my friends about some of this stuff, but she said, all of my friends that are girls are bisexual. All of them, 12 years old, all of them, all my friends. So the light guys, some, and, she, and I'm like, well, what about the boys? She said, well, the boys, they, they don't really, they're not really, I don't know. They don't really do that that I know of, but all the girls are. She's like, so how do you, you know, how do we, how do we do this? And, and so we're, we're having this long discussion. And, and for some of you, and let me just talk to the parents, if you don't talk to your kids about this, someone will. And people are. In our culture, you can't even just watch something on TV without, I'm constantly having, aren't I having to do Addison? This is my 14-year-old son. I'm like, bro, turn your eyes. Close your eyes. And I'm not like, yeah, close your eyes, buddy. And I'm looking like, oh, you know, like. We have to as well because this is not my body. This is not my life and my truth and my thing. If you are a believer in Jesus, you have submitted yourself to the purchasing of your life through his blood. He would say this way, again, not that you're perfect because there's no perfect people allowed, but as a believer, you're coming to God saying this, your death on a cross and your resurrection to life was my death of my life and my resurrection to your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now, is that hard? Well, sure. But this is why Paul has to say, I have to remind you, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. God has a copyright on everything in this world. God has a copyright on you, on your materials, on your things. In fact, the Bible says everything in the world is God. Do you understand that? Like in the first century, they could have had a cell phone if they understood the materials and the science, but all the materials were there. 
All of it was there. Nothing of that has been created. It's just that we found it, subdued it, and created communication. But it was all there. God already instilled it into our earth in order to say, this is mine, and now I give it to you to steward well. But remember, it's mine. My copyright license is on it. Trust me in it. I give it to you for your good. You can't abuse it, but don't, but submit it to me. And I'm doing this for your good. And we have to have this conversation and not only just to other people, but to ourselves. I like to tell, say this to Christians. If, 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 I, if I ask, do you ever talk to people about God? You're like, no. Well, it's probably because you don't talk to yourself about God. You preach the gospel to yourself first and you argue with yourself in it. And you will find yourself encouraging and preaching in love the gospel to others. So we first, I am the righteousness in God in Christ Jesus and this body is not my own. I'm not going to buy the virus and the lie that I can just do whatever I want. Because it will and it does affect me and the people around me. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 16 says this. Let's keep going. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So this is what they wrote to Paul. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman outside of the context of marriage. So he's talking about celibacy. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So he said, because we have that proclivity to want to have sex, because it's not a bad thing, but that temptation comes. He said, then commit to one woman or one man not just have multiple spouse or multiple things or do whatever you want. He says, in the confines of marriage. He says this, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Sounds like prison. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Our husbands love to quote that. Hey, girl, your body's Jesus's and mine. Keep reading. Likewise. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. It's not about you alone. We do not, do not deprive one another except, and he's talking about of, of sexual relations, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Let me say this. And we're going to hit on this hard when I talk about singleness a little bit. We have this mentality in the church, and I think the church needs to repent a lot for saying, if you're single, you're not as spiritual as if you're married. Paul here says the opposite. He says, you're married, it's a gift, but it's because you don't have enough self-control to not be married. And he could say that because he was single and being celibate. And so he's actually saying the opposite, that you have more self-control and more potential, and, and no, don't need that if you're able to do that and have the gift of singleness versus the gift of marriage. And we're going to hit that much harder here in a little bit, which will be fun. He says this, verse 6, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, single, celibate, but each has his own gift from God 
one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. That's the opposite in our culture, right? I need to practice everything. We need to cohabitate to get ready to then maybe commit. He's saying you might as well commit instead of burn with passion because it's going to be better for you anyways. The gospel is often upside down, but right side up. Check this out. He says this. To the unmarried widows and the, uh, unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. Don't, but they can't, uh, excuse me, cannot exercise self-control. They should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Look at this. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, we got to stop here because when we rightly divide the Bible, okay, there's a, there are some caveats to divorce. I think he's so strong on this because in the culture at that time, you could write a note and be divorced, or you could just say, I'm divorced. And in fact, there's cultures here. I, I read about it years ago in an article where you could text, I divorce you three times and you're officially divorced within the culture. And it's that easy. And he's trying to say, God hates divorce. Divorce is a horrible thing that should not happen. So do not pursue that. Don't let that be the deal breaker. Like immediately I'm going to divorce, which is what we do in our culture for the most part. I, I, I've, seen, I've seen more people get divorced because they were unhappy in their marriage than because someone was unfaithful. And Paul's trying to say, and I'm not trying to condemn you, I come from a divorced family. My wife comes from a divorce. Divorce has plagued our whole family. So I'm not coming as a self-righteous. I, don't, I have a lot of compassion. I went through it as a child myself. And let me tell you, divorce biblically is not um, just breaking a contract and moving on and saying, I just want to be done with them and move on with my life. Because especially if you have kids, just physically, you will never be done with that person. You're always going to have a graduation. You're always going to have something else that comes up that you're going to have to see each other. And you're going to have to deal with some of those things. So Paul's saying, don't let this, let this, this, uh, this enemy, this door just be cracked open enough to be able to just get out really quickly. However, the Bible does give reasons for divorce, adultery, abuse. And if your, other, if your spouse leaves you after you become a believer or a Christian and they leave you because of Christianity, it says you let them go. And we're going to see that here in a second. But I, I want to hit just for a second divorce. And I want to show you when I do weddings, I, I talk about this. Um, because I think when we have the mindset that marriage is a contract, okay? And I know some of you cogn cognitive resistance are already turning me off because you've been divorced. I'm not here to, here to make you feel bad or anything, but I want you to listen. Just listen real quick. Because we have the, the mindset that um, marriage is a contract versus a covenant, it is easy just to break a contract because a contract is transactional. And a contract says this, you do these things and I'll do these things. But if you break the contract, then I'm done. I'm gone. Right? So like we, we recently had our, our parking lot redone. We didn't spend like the $100,000 to really do it, but we just did kind of a basic thing we could do. And we didn't have to ask anybody for any money because you guys are such great givers. Thank you so much. God bless you. Isn't that awesome? You guys are great givers. Thank you. But if I made a contract with our contractor and he broke 
that contract, then I'm out. I'm done. He owes me money. I can sue him. I'm done. Rip up the contract. That's a contract. And most of our marriages are that way. And yet our vows are not, right? We don't come before the altar and say, if you do these things, then I'm good. If you don't, I'm gone. Unless you have prenuptial agreements, which I think are not godly. Because a marriage is a covenant. Now, a covenant, let me show you this picture. A covenant in, in biblical times, and even in some uh, Bedouin, uh, even nowadays, desert people still practice some of these things. And it seems very archaic, maybe primitive, but there's symbolism and passion behind what they're doing and what they're trying to help you understand when it comes to marriage. And here's what they do. They will literally get a cow, get, get you know, any type of animal specifically, and they would cut them in half and create a pool of blood, just like what you're seeing. And, and the symbolism we use in marriage is we have this red carpet that goes all the way down, right? And we have the bride on one side and the groom on another, and we exchange rings and exchange names and do all these things. We do it symbolically. They do it symbolically as well, but much more imagery and grotesque to show how powerful marriage is. And so what they would do is, and you could see this Abraham with Abimelech, you could see other covenants when they cut a covenant. It's called cutting because they're cutting the animal in half. The blood runs down and the husband and the wife or future husband and wife will come and they will splash in the blood. They will meet in the middle. And what they're saying, when they say their vows, not a contract, if you do this, I do this, but my vow to you to sickness and in health always be with you. This is my covenant. They will say this to the other person in the midst of blood. And here's what they're saying. If I break this vow, what we did to these animals, you do to me. I'm here for life. So I take my dating very seriously. Don't, wouldn't, wouldn't you date a little more serious? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you court or be with somebody or really find out how their friends are and how their character is a little bit more serious if you're going, this is what I'm stepping into. And what they would often do, not only saying that, but then they would exchange they would exchange names, right? So now we exchange names. My wife took on my last name because now that makes us one person, a new name together. We are not two, but now we are one in marriage. They would exchange cloaks or even a sword in saying, my possessions are your possessions. So we don't have dual accounts. So you don't know what I'm doing. We share our stuff. What's mine is yours. What's yours is mine. This is a blood cutting covenant. This is serious in my life. When God made a covenant with Abraham in the book of Genesis, his name was Abram. He gave him the name Abraham, giving him a form of his name, Yahweh, and saying, you are now identified with me, not just by yourself. This idea of covenant is so much more powerful than contract. And this is why God, when he sees you stand before other men and other people and a cloud of witnesses and him and say, I vow to you, he takes that extremely seriously. Now, we do know there are reasons for divorce. And I think God advocates for that as well because of the dangers of the household with adultery, with someone completely leaving somebody. There are reasons, but I've also seen Couples where adultery happened and they were, through the grace of God and the love of God, able to come together and forgive one another and have a great marriage. There's marriages in this room that are 20, 30 years old that you don't know that that affected them because today you go, no way. They love each other so much and yet God has done amazing, amazing things. And that's what God wants because he wants us to be covenant people. 
Because he makes that same covenant with us through Jesus Christ. Not only do I agree and say, yes, I will do these things, but he says, my blood is on the line. And God says, if you're single, you're one with Christ. If you're married, you too are one flesh with Christ. He says, please take it seriously. Look at what he says here, verse 10. Or verse, verse 12, excuse me. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So things were happening where people came together, they got married, and then later he's saying the man came to know Christ and submitted his life to Christ, but his wife was not a Christian. He says, you, you can't divorce her. You shouldn't divorce her. And he says the same. Uh, the other way around. But the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. Um, Look at verse 13. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So if they're going, I know you're a Christian, but I'm not, then you still stay with her. And this is important. He says this, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. In other words, because of your representation of Christ, even though you are one flesh, but you're the only believer, you are bringing that into your home and potentially seeing your children come to know Christ. Versus I know Christ, that person doesn't. That gives me the right to leave them because they're not devoted to Jesus. Here's what, he, here's, what, here's what he says. You're not allowed to do that because your commitment, even though I wasn't involved in your original covenant and marriage, your commitment, it doesn't mean now that you have a commitment to the Lord, you can get out of all your other commitments. In fact, he says it's stronger now because you're representing Christ. And I've, I've met and talked to a lot of people that say, you know what, we weren't Christians before, then I became Christian, and now this guy's no good, and it was an unhappy marriage. But all marriages are unhappy at some point. And I've been married 17 years. You've got to work for it. It's a garden. The only thing that grows in a garden on accident is stickers and weeds, man. And in your marriage, the only thing that grows by accident, it's just if you don't work it, it's going to work you. You've got to work it. But finding somebody else, all you're going to do is be in love at first and then find that not work that garden. And guess what? The second time you're married, you're 65% more of a chance to get a divorce again. And it just increases. It doesn't get better, okay, without Christ. But let me say this. There's not an excuse to get rid of your old covenants or your old agreements now that you have a new agreement in Jesus. And this is what is hitting. And I've seen this constantly. They don't know Jesus. They don't love Jesus. And it wasn't really a commitment to God when I did it because we didn't know God. And God says, no. In fact, you're bound more to it now. And your love and devotion to God could actually turn that person around. You never know. Now, let me say this, because I'm going to wrap up and I've got my, my Grammy music going. Check this out. Singles, verse 25, because I've got to talk about singles now, concerning the betrothed, horrible, horrible, horrible word. Um, the actual word in the Greek is parthenon, which means virgins or, or un- unmarried um, celibate singles. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. He's saying, I'm, I'm single. 
And this is where I can't talk to this bum. I got married at 21. So if you're single in here, you're like, bro, you don't know. And I'm like, yeah, I know, I know. But Paul knows, let's see what Paul says. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is, remain single. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if betrothed, a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. So marriage is a gift. So is singleness is what he's saying. You're not bound to either one. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. The, the married couples are laughing. That is what... I mean, brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. So don't just think about today. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. He continues and talks about just this difference. And I know some singles in here are like, okay, yeah, I get it. I, I get it. Like, I know it's, it's easier if you're single. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's easier in the sense that you don't have divided attention. That doesn't mean you have more money and more time necessarily. I know a lot of singles because you're so divided in your friends and stuff like that, it would be easier to be married and just focus on that person and build really depth relationship. So it doesn't mean you have more time. I know singles that they don't have as much money because two double income, no kids people can, can do a lot more with their income. I get that. So that's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, singleness is a gift so is marriage. And so married people in here, the, the worst thing you can do, and I know this because I've done it, the worst thing you do is to a single person, it's okay, single person, don't get offended if we ask, hey, are you married? If you get offended by that, we, we already need to talk. So I'm just trying to get to know you. But if you say no, and say, like, well, when are you gonna get married? Or, oh, I got somebody for you. That's usually not the best for singles, right? And I know that because I sent out a survey to our singles, to a few of them, about 12 of them, guys and girls. And I asked them, what do you like least about being single? Most of them said loneliness. Some of them said the constant feeling and knowledge that there's something wrong with me. Like I'm missing out. I can't ride that ride because I'm not mature or responsible enough. And Paul is going, that's crazy. You don't have to be married to be a leader in the church. You should lead actually out because you're single, because you can have undivided time and let's focus on the Lord completely. But see the church, and I think we need to repent and married couples need to repent for saying, you have to do this. This is your spiritual badge if you're married. Because Paul says, no, no, no. See, your singleness is a gift. Your marriage is a gift. They're both from God. And you use those and exploit those as much as God has given you in order for his greatest good, ultimately. But see, what happens is I think it's easy as married people to put that on single people. And then we get mad when they over-desire marriage. Because when you put that on a single person, it makes it seem like once you get married, everything works out and there's something wrong with you as long as you're not. And you're just gonna stay lonely and God's punishing you. Thus, we're creating an idol of marriage. You find that person and everything's gonna work out. And every married person in here would say, I fell for that or I thought that and it's not true. 
ultimately, the only person that's going to ultimately satisfy me is Jesus. And if I over-desire marriage, it's a good desire. If I over-desire it, I've now placed that on top of God and put it in a position that it will fail me every time. That person, guess what? You're going to marry a sinner if you marry. Right? And, and those of you that got married and said, man, I wasn't this bad when I was single. Yes, you were. Because all marriage is, I play guitar, all marriage is is going from acoustic to plugging it in to an amplifier. And now you're going, this is me. Now you're going, oh my gosh, this is me. This is who I am. And now everybody can see it and you can see it. It's what's going on inside of you. And if you over-desire, you think that's what's going to be the thing. And then you come into your marriage and, it, and things aren't great. You go, I'm unhappy. I, a lot of married people want to be single. And a lot of single people want to be married. Now, on the other end, if you're married and you under-desire your marriage, you're wrong too. You place it in a, in a place, eh, it's no big deal. It's just me and God and God's going, well, is your body yours or your wife's? Are you doing things for me? Which means you're doing things for her as well because she's your responsibility or vice versa. So we don't under-desire. We need to repent for under-desiring and putting it below where it's supposed to be. And we need to repent for over-desiring it and thinking it's going to be this and then crashing down. And we need to say, God, I want you and desire you. And then he sets your desires right. He doesn't say don't desire it. He sets it right. And some of you are single in here and God says, this is your gift. Treat it as a gift. Treat it as a gift. And some of you are going, you know, but I, I do desire to be married. Okay, God has a time and a waiting for you. Trust him, but be careful not to over-desire. And if you're married, be careful not to under-desire. I asked singles, what do you like most about being single? A lot of them said, for the freedom. I, I said this first service, it was off the cuff, but it's true. Um, marriage is like Apple versus PC. Um, if, you, if you like security over freedom, get an apple, right? You don't have a lot of freedom, but you don't have any viruses. And that's marriage. I'm secure, but I'm not super free. Like, I can't just go. If you go and do whatever you want, you're married. It ain't lasting, right? What's this bill? Oh, nothing, girl. It's my money. Uh -huh. Good luck. You'll be seeing me later. If you're a PC fan, singleness, you love your freedom, but you might get a virus. No, I'm just kidding. But you, you, <laughs> I don't mean that kind of virus. But there are dangers as well. And, but each one is a gift. And the Bible says not one's better than the other. In fact, but more so Paul would lean like it's better to be single. So not just be content, but look at it as a gift. Don't just squash desires, but make sure they don't go too far. And some of us in here, we're going to wrap up. Some of us in here are married. And we thought it was going to be the thing that's, that helped us and saved us and took us to another level. And, and, and you really quickly, it could have been on the honeymoon, went wah, wah, wah. And ever since, it's been hard to muster up those desires to pursue and to cultivate that marriage. And I would say, you need to repent. Repent means change the way you think and act. So you need to go, okay, this is a gift, not a curse. 
This is my responsibility and my duty as a covenant person with God and my spouse. And I'm gonna work the land that God gave me as a steward. And some of you that are single, like you over-desire, like if, if I just had that, I wouldn't be as lonely, I wouldn't be, let me, let me say this, that is an absolute false statement. There's, there's a single celibate man named, named Ron Balgo, I think is his name. I, I have the, the quote up here. He says this, is celibacy difficult? Yes, so is marriage, so is grad school. Life is pain, princess. He's quoting one of the greatest movies of all time, Princess Bride. He says, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. He says, is it frustrating at times? Yes, but watch someone raising toddlers sometime and it may change your perspective on the challenges of celibacy. If you're single, you should probably work in the nursery every once in a while. It's a great abstinence motivator. I've been there times when I, have have there been times I've wanted to give up? He said, yes, but is it worth it? Yes. And do I regret it? No. The gift, everything is hard. Everything can create a sense of, there's no more lonely person. Let me say this, than someone who is married to a very spiteful, hateful person and married in a relationship, but extremely alone. Some of you guys know that because you're in a room full of people right now, but you feel so lonely the room full of people isn't giving you what you need. Only God can give you that and satisfy your desires from the inside out. So some of us over-desire and need to repent. Some of us under-desire and need to repent. And I think that's where we end today in saying, God, I need you. I want you. I need your desire. And I need you to appropriate my desires according to you. We're not Buddhists that say just deny all your desires. They're evil and bad. No, they're good and they can be good when placed in the right greenhouse. That's what God wants for you. Will you stand to your feet as we close and pray? I just want to ask you to close your eyes. We're going to have a time just just to pray here and uh, we're going to wrap up. we're going to have our one-to-one team come up at the end of service and pray. I know we've had, we've had, I've talked to multiple people here. My own brother-in-law's here doing radiation treatment. I've talked to some other people that have visited our church because they're here for cancer treatment. And gosh, we, we want to pray for you. We believe in what the doctors can do, but we also believe that what God can do, and let's, let's, let's add the natural and the supernatural. They're not exclusive. And so we want to pray for you if you have any ailments like that. If you just need to talk to somebody, we're here. We want to pray with you and offer you counsel. But before we do that and in the service with that, I switch it, every head bowed, every eyes, clo- eyes closed. And I want you to just think about where you are kind of on the spectrum of desire. Where you are when you, when you hear about married people and, and illustrations of that. Do you, as a single person, do you find yourself just like, oh, frustrated? And some of it is, is valid because of the placement that people in the church and society puts on singles. Get your validity from Paul, from Christ, that you are one in Christ, that you are a leader, that you are part of a family that's greater than blood. That's the family of God. And I think there's an opportunity to say, God, I'm not saying take the desire away, but check me when I over-desire. And if you're in here as a married person and you under-desire your marriage and you're going, oh, I don't, 
not, I, don't, I don't care about this anymore. I'm struggling or we're struggling. Hey, that's real. We've all been there. We've all done that if you've, if you've married anybody. There's no perfect marriage. But we want to be perfectible and that desire needs to be grown back in you. God, let me serve my wife well as you serve the church and lay your, your life down, Jesus. Let me submit well, which submission is just an attitude, not an action. But let me submit my heart, my attitude in respect and love well. And I just want to pray for those on either spectrum today. And if you'd like to talk or pray at the end of service, we'd love to do that. God, I pray for those today, marriages that are, that are struggling and just the commitment's not there, the, the cultivation of the marriage is not there. God, will you convict our hearts, not to make us feel bad, but ultimately to look to you and see how you cultivate us, how much you care and let that inspire us to desire our spouse and our family and take responsibility and care for one another as we look to you, God. And I pray for the singles in here, Lord Jesus, some of them, you've given them that gift and they are, they are good to go. They see it as a gift. God, will you continue to keep them strong, looking to you, God, in their devotion on you. Lord, I pray for those that are in, in kind of the waiting they desire. Help them not to over-desire, to put it in a place that it's not supposed to be. And give them the wisdom and the knowledge to know where they are, but ultimately to make you King and Lord, knowing we are bought with a price. We love you, God. We praise you. In Jesus' mighty name.